Welcome to The Secret Life of Dietitians. I'm Laura Poland. And I'm Amy Keller. Politics are heating up. Yep. Ah, it's debate yeah. season. Yes, it is. We even had... In uh, our backyard. We did. Here <laughs> in Ohio, we had the most recent Democratic uh, candidate debate. Right. So we thought we would join in the fun. Yeah. And debate some very controversial nutrition topics today. So I have to thank Catherine, Beth, Allison, Julie, and Jennifer for helping us kind of come up with our first food debate topics. Absolutely. So uh, this was inspired to me from them. And we're hoping that maybe this becomes something that we do on a somewhat regular basis. And we thought we uh, might do this at the end of almost every podcast if we get some suggestions from viewers like you. So if you have ideas, dish at secretliferd.com or you can visit our website, www.secretliferd.com with your ideas of what you want to hear us debate. So let's talk about how we're going to do this debate. So here's the format. I feel, okay. like, I feel like Anderson Cooper. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So here's the format for today's debate. We're each going to take one side of a controversial nutrition topic, and we each have three minutes to defend our position. Now, okay. some of these positions maybe aren't the most comfortable for us to defend. No. Because maybe we agree with them or we aren't. But we right. were preparing for today, we decided that we would t- each take a side. At the end of three minutes, you will hear this. And, or when we run out of ideas. Right. <laughs> run out of things to say. Might not which be could three happen. minutes. <laughs> and that means our time to debate that part of the topic is up. Right. And then we might have a little bit of discussion at the end of each one about what we think yeah. um, about those particular topics. So right. we have our stopwatches ready. Yep. And we are going to take on... Maybe the most controversial nutrition topic I've ever heard of. Yeah. Margarine versus butter. butter. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. All right. Are you starting first? I'm going to start with margarine. Okay. So here we go. I've got my timer for you. So and you go. go. So we talk about margarine versus butter a lot, but I thought I'd kind of talk about margarine nutritionally because mm-hmm. there are so many misconceptions about margarine. So let's first talk about just the nuts and bolts of it. It's about the same number of calories as butter, if that calorie counting is a concern. You can also buy lighter margarines that maybe are about half the calories, so about 50 calories per tablespoon. Lower saturated fat content than butter, so five grams versus eight grams, but the benefits to margarine is that it also contains polyunsaturated and monounsaturated fats, so those heart-healthier fats. Margarine no longer contains any of those harmful trans fats. Trans fats were banned in the United States this past summer, so you will not find any margarine on store shelves that contains those partially hydrogenated fats. There was a 2017 study of about 74,000 women that found that a lower risk of heart attacks and strokes for women who use margarine instead of butter. But I think what was important about this study, it was an association only. And if you think back to our study on, or our podcast on studies, association does not prove cause and effect. So there's not necessarily, you know, definitely using margarine will lower your risk of heart disease. There are two types of margarine available. One's called Take Control and the other one's called Benicol that actually not only contain no cholesterol but block the absorption of cholesterol so they can be helpful. 
Finally, those misconceptions about margarine. Margarine is not one molecule away from being plastic. It's just not. Margarine has lots of different kinds of molecules. Plastic had, contains polymers that actually have nothing to do with margarine. You know, if you think about it, water and hydrogen peroxide are also one molecule apart, but you certainly wouldn't want to drink hydrogen peroxide. Uh, margarine was also not invented to fatten turkeys. It was invented in France in the late 1800s in response to Napoleon III's offer of a prize to anyone who could pr produce a low-cost substitute to butter intended for people in uh, lower classes. Uh, again, it was something that was meant to be a replacement for butter. Uh, the butter, the beef fat that was in margarine originally was eventually replaced by those vegetable oils. You know, butter, for example, is made from butter fat and milk. Modern margarine is made from refined vegetable oil, water, and may contain milk. So here's the thing. Use what you like. If you do not like the taste of margarine, no one is forcing you to use it. It is possibly more beneficial to your heart, but there's not necessarily any tremendous advantage to using it. Also, I kind of think how much do you use? You know, if you're using lots and lots and lots of margarine, then, you know, maybe or lots of things on your, your toast, maybe you want to use something that's a little heart healthier and I'm out of time. <laughs> I was going to get you before. Yay, I did it. Okay, here we go. Okay, so are you it ready is time for my time butter? Okay, so. here we go. All right. So I know, if you enjoy butter on your baked potato toast or pasta, you've probably felt a pang of guilt when you're putting that on your plate. But, you know, you might feel confused and conflicted about whether or not you should switch. Butter, let me talk about that a little bit. Butter is a traditional dietary staple. It's made by churning cream. It's mainly used for frying fat, spread, and component of sauces, cakes, and pastries. Basically, at... It's a concentrated source of milk fat. It's mostly composed of saturated fat. And because of studies that are associated a high intake of saturated fat with increased risk of heart disease, public authorities started recommending that we limit our consumption of butter in the 1970s. Margarine is a processed food that is designed to taste and look similar to butter, uh, but it's often recommended as a heart-healthy replacement, as Amy mentioned. Basically, though, butter is, like I said, a more natural state. So let's talk a little bit about the high saturated fat component of it. Like I mentioned, it's been demonized for the high saturated fat component. It is composed of 50% saturated fat, while the rest is mainly water and unsaturated fat. Now, Amy did mention calorie for calorie butter and margarine are the same, but you could also get light margarine. The same is actually true about butter. I have seen light butters on the market, and those are about 50% of the calories and 50% of the fat and still have that butter flavor and taste. Let's see. So like, I, like Amy mentioned also, observational studies investigating the association between saturated fat and heart disease has provided mixed results. So conversely, switching saturated fat out uh, we found for carbs or protein appears to have no effect either on reducing risk for, for heart disease. So as a result, some experts doubt that saturated fat really is a cause for concern. Others are still very much concerned about it. So we go back and forth. 
High intake of saturated fat has been linked to increased risk of heart disease, but the evidence, like I said, is inconsistent. The other thing with butter, it is, it is high in cholesterol, and that, is a ma that was once thought to be a major risk for heart disease. Uh, summary here is butter is high in cholesterol, however, it has limited effect on our blood cholesterol levels in most people. And so the truth is there was never any good evidence about using margarine instead of butter, cut the chances of having a heart attack or developing heart disease. Um, I personally prefer foods that are less processed like butter and that's what I will con recommend consuming. <laughs> so that butter versus margarine thing. Yeah, you know, right? I get this all the time from patients. Do you? I do. Yeah. I do. They want to know what I do. Right. I say use what you like. Right. I do too. I prefer the spreadability of margarine. Yeah. I think See, it spreads a little nicer on my toast. Uh-huh. Well, I keep, my, I keep my butter on my counter. Well, there you go. And I, so, and I prefer the taste of the butter. Right. And for years and years and years, I was able to get light butter at the grocery store. And mm -hmm. I felt much better about that because it was like the same butter flavor, but it mm -hmm. was half the calories and half the saturated fat. Right. I have to admit, though, my grocery store has stopped carrying it. Yeah. And so that's kind of a bummer. It reminds so me of I've that. Kind of switched back to regular butter, but I just don't use it very much either. Right. You know, I butter use butter for baking because really margarine doesn't make as good a product. Right. Um, or yeah. olive oil could be used in baking, yep. which is another legitimate use of that. Right. Um, but or canola oil if you don't want the flavor of an olive oil. Right. Correct. To me... It's the dose makes the poison. How much are you going to yeah, use? If exactly. you use a pat of butter on your toast, you know, three times a week and mm -hmm. maybe occasionally on a baked potato or something like that, then I think you use what you like. Yeah, I do too. I do too. But And there's some margins on the market these days too that also want to promote like that they actually have sterols in it and stannels in it. The that ones can I help, mentioned. Yeah, yeah, reduce. But the amount of margarine that you have to consume in a day to see that benefit is... Right. It's really high. It's really high. Right. It's kind of like how many Cokes it would take a day to be a problem. You know, right. it's just Diet Cokes. And, and, and yeah, so that, and that's debatable too. But anyway. Yep. So that was our first one. Yep. And now we are moving on to everybody's favorite subject, bacon. Bacon. Mm. Okay. So we are going to do bacon versus turkey bacon. Correct. Now, who is going first I, with that one? How about you go first because you've got the regular pork bacon. Okay. And that's what everybody's used to. All right. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm moving papers around here just that's a minute because okay. I was a little out of order from... All right. All right. I think I'm good. So three minutes on bacon and here we go. All right. Some calorie and fat conscious eaters choose turkey bacon as a healthy alternative to the pork variety that traditionally graces our breakfast tables. But the substitute is still high in saturated fat and sodium and doesn't carry as many health benefits as some people believe. In fact, opting for turkey bacon as a healthier choice sometimes can actually have a negative impact on your health. And let me defend that a little bit. The thing is, uh, believing it's the better option, a lot of people end up eating more than they would have had they just eaten regular bacon. And so I tell my clients to limit bacon products, including turkey bacon, to less than one serving a week in their diet. So let's talk about this a little bit. Pork bacon comes from the belly of a pig, and turkey bacon is dark and light meat turkey seasoned with bacon and pressed into bacon form. 
As with bacon made with pork, turkey bacon is high in saturated fat and sodium like I mentioned. And so the similarities don't stop there. If we look by the numbers, uh, turkey bacon contains fewer calories than pork bacon, but the difference is fairly small. When we're comparing a two-ounce serving, it's 218 calories versus 268 calories. Uh, the overall fat content of turkey bacon is significantly lower than pork bacon, so 14 grams versus 22 grams. The level of saturated fat, however, is still high, so with 4 to 8 grams respectively. High saturated fat content does contribute to heart disease. Sodium. Here's the thing. If you don't select reduced sodium bacon, just a few slices can max out your daily recommended intake of salt. Two ounces of turkey bacon has more than 1,900 milligrams of sodium, and the same amount of pork bacon contains 1,300 milligrams of sodium. So in addition to increasing your heart disease risk, high sodium increases the likelihood of kidney stones as well. Turkey bacon, or sorry, turkey and pork bacon both can provide the B vitamin complex nutrients, but pork bacon does offer more. Pork also contains more selenium, a mineral that activates certain proteins that are associated with preventing cancer. Turkey and pork bacon roughly contain the same amount of zinc. And so for me, with turkey bacon versus regular bacon, it comes down again to taste. And I prefer pork bacon because the full flavor in the bacon, I tend to use less and I tend to not need a lot when I'm serving myself. I'll ding myself. Okay. <laughs> I'm done. A little under three minutes. All right. So let's talk about turkey bacon. Okay. You ready to time me? No. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. So as Laura mentioned, two types of turkey bacon exist. There's one that comes from ground white and dark meats from various sections of the turkey. They're, that mixture is then brined and then sliced into strips. The second version of turkey bacon is made with larger chunks of dark meat from the thighs of the turkey, which are tumbled in a flavoring solution until they form into a mass. This mass is then sliced and packaged. As she mentioned, it can absolutely be as high in sodium as regular pork bacon, if not higher in sodium. But there are advantages to using turkey bacon and the fact that the calorie content can be a little bit lower, the fat content can be a little bit lower. Protein is very similar. A common concern for consumers regarding regular bacon is the use of nitrates to preserve that bacon when and there's concern possibly that nitrates may have a link to the development of certain cancers. However, is there a difference between the nitrate content of pork bacon versus the nitrate content of turkey bacon? All bacon, turkey included, is processed with nitrate, whether that kind of, you know, that synthetic nitrate is added versus a natural nitrate. Again, scientists are still sorting out the link between nitrates and cancer, and when you see studies about processed meats, this is kind of what they're referring to. The bottom line is, no matter what you eat, whether it's turkey bacon or regular bacon, processed meats are probably something we should all be eating less of, if at all. A high intake of processed meat, including things like ham, sausage, hot dogs, deli meat, and bacon, has possibly been linked to a greater risk of colon cancer in particular. It is not really clear how this happens between bacon and lunch meats and hot dogs, um, but it's possible that the high temperatures used to process the meats re uh, result in the creation of hydrocarbons, compounds that are linked to cancers in animals and colon cancer in people. 
While debated by scientists, this length may have also to do with nitrates and nitrites that are added to processed meats. So what can you do about it? So if you're buying turkey bacon or pork bacon, select a reduced sodium variety. They do exist. So look for that reduced sodium turkey bacon. Just because it's turkey bacon, it doesn't mean it's a completely healthy choice, as you mentioned. Don't add salt to your bacon. You know, don't add oil or butter when you're cooking bacon. Use an indoor grill that will allow that fat to drip off. Don't pan fry your bacon. Um, and then ideally, yes, drain that cooked bacon on a paper towel to absorb excess grease when you're done. Just like you said, though, it comes down to a matter of taste. I agree with you, the health halo thing with turkey bacon might be a thing. And if you know that health halo term, it basically means that healthy kind of choice. It sort of psychologically allows people to think that they can eat more of that product. So be really careful when you look at those healthy alternatives. <laughs> gotcha. Three minutes. I did it. Good. All right. I think you were there. Yeah. Okay. So bacon, you know, it's one of those things. Again, if you eat more turkey bacon because you're eating, you think I'm eating the healthier choice, it might be time to reevaluate. Yeah. Is it really a healthier choice if I'm eating twice as much? Right. That's what I see. Yeah. So a lot of people do tend to eat more of it. At least to and that then rewarding. they have it more often. And right. Where if I'm going to have regular bacon, I know it's I know it's not the best choice, but I can eat less. Because I, I don't, I know I won't eat it all the time. Right. And uh, there are butcher shops that you can get bacon that's not been processed with nitrates. Right. You can get nitrate-free bacon right. now. Too. You can buy that at some grocery stores. Yeah. Too. Yeah. I know I can get it at our local grocery store. But they tend to be at a higher price point. Yep. For sure. So yeah. you have yeah. to think about the accessibility of that to everyone. Right. Yeah. You know, that tends to be something that, and maybe even in specialty grocery stores, you know, only available versus regular grocery stores. Yeah. Again, sometimes that can be something that's more difficult for people to find. Yeah. Now you mentioned the protein. Yes. Being comparable. And that's what I was seeing online. I almost don't believe it though. Yeah. I've always been told that there's not really a lot of protein in bacon. And the thing is, in one slice of bacon, I know it's like 50 calories and it's only about three grams of protein, mm -hmm. right? The amount you would have to eat would be pretty large. I think yeah. that probably also harkens back to our days of being old dietitians <laughs> and that bacon was always in the fat category. Right. For, for diabetics. For people with diabetes. Yeah. yeah. It's still in that fat category. It's, it's not, not something I have them count as a protein. Right. And so I backed down from saying that that was a similarity, but yeah. Right. I think it's you know, pretty similar. Technically, they are similar in terms of the amount of protein. I would have thought right. the turkey bacon would have been higher in protein, right. honestly. Right. And I think it is slightly. Just slightly. But a couple it, of grams higher. I just I was surprised to find that it had more protein than I thought it did. Right. Actually. <laughs> you know, again, I'm not sure I would use that as my protein source at breakfast. No. You know, no. if you're asking somebody who's eating, you know, four to five slices of bacon trying to get their 15 grams of protein. Exactly. That's going to be a really high sodium start to your day. Yeah. They do make low sodium pork bacon mm -hmm. as they do low sodium turkey bacon. So mm -hmm. that can be another right. good option. Correct. But it's still something that's probably should be limited in most people's diets to yeah. a treat mm -hmm. and not an everyday consumption. Right. Absolutely. Yep. All right. 
Now we're moving on to tomatoes. And I will say tomatoes was tough for me. <laughs> yeah, you got the short end of the I stick did. on this. You really yeah, did. We talked we'll, about we'll hint that out, but. <laughs> um, fresh tomatoes versus canned tomatoes. So I will go ahead and start. I'm not sure I have three minutes on this, but we'll, we'll go, okay. give it a shot. All right. Go. But let's talk about the benefits of tomatoes. So fresh tomatoes. So here's a little bit of the nuts and bolts of the nutrition of fresh tomatoes. This is information from the USDA for one small whole tomato. So the calories are really low, 16 calories for a tomato, like less than a half a gram of fat. There's just nothing in it. Four <laughs> milligrams of sodium. That's if you don't salt your tomatoes. Many of my patients say, oh, I salt my tomatoes. Um, yeah. That's this is without salt. Carbohydrates, very low carb. Uh, less than four grams of carbohydrate for the entire tomato. One gram of fiber, less than two and a half grams of natural sugar, and then protein less than a gram. So from a low calorie, low carbohydrate perspective, they're a really good choice. Um, they're also high in water content, so they again help you maybe feel more satisfied because they're bulky, um, and they're also rich in those red colors that we're looking for in our fruits and vegetables. Um, I'm a big believer of eating the rainbow, and when I talk to patients, you know, they say, "Oh, I'm I want to make sure I'm eating from all of the the colors of the those fruits and vegetables," you know. And red a tomato is a great way to get those red fruits and vegetables in. A fresh tomato has over 3,000 micrograms of lycopene and 500 micrograms of beta carotene. The big controversy I see with tomatoes and is the, the words nightshades. And many people are worried about consuming nightshades. This is something that you hear Tom Brady is doing. He's available, <laughs> yes. you know, he's avoiding nightshades in his diet. If you buy his book, please don't. But if you do, um, this is one of the things he avoids because I think he's worried about increasing pain. And, and um, there is some anecdotal evidence, uh, again, case reports of people feeling that they have more arthritis symptoms when they are consuming nightshades, which again include other very healthy fruits and vegetables such as potatoes. There is no direct like link and there's no research. The Arthritis Foundation um, has a statement about this on their website that there's no uh, link between nightshades and inflammation or arthritis pain. I will say if you feel like it makes your arthritis worse when you eat tomatoes, then don't eat them. But it's very unlikely that for most people that this is something that they need to avoid to control pain. Okay. All right. I did what I could. You did. <laughs> that was good. That was good. Okay. So let's talk about canned tomatoes. All right. I can just. All right. I got it. Okay. All right. Here we go. All right. Tomato and tomato products contain a wide variety of nutrients, as Amy described. The other thing is they do include vitamin C, vitamin E, potassium, and fiber. They're loaded with powerful antioxidants such as beta carotene and lycopene. In the canning process, when tomatoes, tomatoes are going to be cooked for any kind of canning process. And what we found is lycopene is more absorbable in the body in its cooked form. So therefore, canned tomatoes have more of the cancer-fighting lycopene than the raw variety when you compare the two. Lycopene is an antioxidant. Like I said, it's been shown to lower the risk of heart disease, prostate cancer, and macular degeneration, which happens with poor eyesight as you get older. 
Tomato products provide 80% of the dietary lycopene that is consumed in the United States, and the cooking of tomatoes, like I said, increases not just the lycopene, but also the carotenoids, lutein, and zeaxanthin. And stewed tomatoes provide more lutein and zeaxanthin than sun-dried tomatoes and raw cherry tomatoes. Raw cherry tomatoes, fun fact, is a little bit higher than other raw tomatoes, which I thought that was interesting. One half cup of canned tomatoes provides 20% of our daily needs of vitamin C. It's nearly 60% more expensive to obtain dietary fiber from fresh tomatoes as from the, a portion of, the same portion of canned tomatoes. Okay, so not only is the price of tomatoes, canned tomatoes lower than fresh for the same serving, but fresh tomatoes take longer to prepare, adding in the total cost of the fresh versus canned. One half cup of canned tomatoes provides, um, let's see, 11.8 milligrams of lycopene compared to 3.7 found in one medium fresh uncooked tomato, from what I found. Canned tomatoes do contain more salt than the fresh tomatoes. If you check the label, typically you're gonna find between 100 and 300 milligrams of sodium per serving. That's four to 13% of the daily recommendation. So look for no added salt versions to reduce your sodium by a third. And the other th advantage to canned is that if you don't want to take the time to blanch, peel your tomatoes for like homemade sauces, soups, and chilies, that's when canned comes in handy. And I per have it as a permanent staple in my pantry. You can find whole, peeled, diced, stewed, crushed, and tomato paste, and tomato puree in my pantry. It's beneficial for my favorite recipe of Italian gravy, which is basically a homemade tomato sauce. And so uh, I think that's good enough. <laughs> so this is I'll a tough it. one for me because <laughs> as I'm reading about the benefits of fresh tomatoes, I'm like, well, canned tomatoes win every time. Right. So I guess you win this one. I know. Uh, so like, that was, yeah. But I think people might have been very surprised at that. Right. They might have been surprised at the fact that you're on the short end of the stick, but you started talking about fresh versus right. canned. Right. And I think that, you know, that's one thing that people underestimate the nutrition that can be in canned vegetables. Right. Not just, tomatoes. you know, tomatoes. And canned vegetables are extremely affordable. Yeah. They really, you know, can last for a long time. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you're concerned about the salt, and that's what most most of my patients right. say, well, it's just too salty for me. Mm -hmm. Rinse them or buy no salt added varieties. There's Correct. everything's available now right. in no salt added. And variety. I do have another tip for that with your canned tomatoes. A lot of times you can find canned tomatoes that are made for chili, or you know, and it already has the spices in right. for chili, or already has the spices in for whatever you're trying to do. Like they think there's like Italian stewed tomatoes. Right. You're better off buying the plain stewed tomatoes and adding your own Italian seasoning right. because you're controlling how much sodium is getting added at that point. Because right. it's already going to have some sodium because of the processing. Right. You really don't need to add more. You right. can just add the Italian seasoning and be done with it. So look for those no salt added varieties. Yep. Season them up yourself. Yep. Um, I always think you know if you want to make chili with no salt added tomatoes and you try it, you know, and you're like, oh, it needs a little a little salt. Mm -hmm. Then again, like you said, you can control how much you add as opposed to it already being in there. Yeah. Same tip with beans. Buy those no salt added varieties mm -hmm. when you can. Yeah. Pun intended. Um, <laughs> I think that's, you know, really important to be able to avoid that extra sodium that comes from canned items. But canned items have a place in a healthy diet. They do. Yeah. And again, the accessibility of them, mm -hmm. I just love. Yeah. I and love. the, the reduce, re reduction of food waste. 
Food right. waste is something that we need to be higher on our radar, and we need you, to start really paying attention. Right. You eat everything in a can. You don't throw in away cores you tend or peels. To not waste. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And skins yeah. and, and those types of things that mm-hmm. sometimes you end up with with uh, you know with fresh, and again they're not going bad in your refrigerator mm-hmm. waiting for you to eat them. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. utilize those when you can. Yep. All right, now we're on to full-fat dairy versus non-fat dairy. Okay. So I got the full-fat end yeah. <laughs> of the okay. dairy products. All right. So do you want me to go first? It doesn't matter. Okay. Well, I'll go ahead and start with okay. whole-fat dairy or full-fat dairy, um, and then maybe those pros and cons around that. So okay. here we go. All okay. Right. So whole milk versus non-fat milk. You really, a few years ago... It was very in vogue for everyone to be drinking skim milk and eating fat-free yogurt and fat-free this and fat-free that. But has it really helped our health? Jury's really out on this. There have been a couple of really interesting studies, large studies that have been done over the last few years that people who eat full-fat dairy, so that would be the full-fat yogurt, full-fat whole milk, end up weighing less, end up having less problems controlling their weight. But is it the milk or is it something else that's causing that effect. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about just the nutrition part of it to start. So one glass of whole milk contains 150 calories, eight grams of total fat, most of them are saturated, Um, about five grams of those are saturated. So you would think if somebody is drinking a whole lot of whole milk, that they would have heart disease, but the research really hasn't bared that out. So the question is why? So they did a study, um, it was published a few years ago, uh, of adults ages 35 to 70 from 21 different countries and found that those who consumed two servings of dairy a day had a lower risk of death from heart disease, whether regardless of whether it was full fat or low fat. But interestingly, they did another study which had people over the age of 65 and had higher levels of dairy fatty acids in their bloodstream had lower risk of cardiovascular events in the following 13 years. So what that study kind of hypothesized is it's possible that the whole fat dairy in their diet was protective against heart disease, possible. So again, you would think more saturated fat, more heart disease, but it's possible that the certain kinds of saturated fat, including those medium chain triglycerides, which is also found in coconut oil, could be beneficial to the heart, not necessarily harmful to the heart. The other thing with full fat dairy is it's more satisfying. So people who are drinking whole milk or eating full fat yogurt may be less likely to reach for a snack later or a sugary snack. And I think this is something that it comes down to with dairy is if you're choosing a non-fat dairy, be aware that some of those non-fat dairy choices are very high in sugar. A lot of those non-fat yogurts tend to have 22 or 23 grams of sugar in them, you know, a lot of those being from an added sugar source. Keep in mind, the dietary guidelines still say that adults should choose low-fat or non-fat dairy to limit saturated fat, but it's possible, again, that research just hasn't caught up. And the other issue is, just like margarine or butter, how much are you going to use? If you're drinking a half a gallon of milk a day, it may be wise to think about something that's a little bit lower in calorie. If you are eating one yogurt a day and maybe a half a cup of milk on your cereal, who cares what you use? It's not going to be consequential to your diet. (laughs) All right. That was fun. Okay. (laughs) So it's time for non-fat dairy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Here we go. All right. 
In the 1980s, fat came under fire and low fat and fat-free products became a dietary staple. But today we do, most nutrition experts largely agree that dietary fat should have a spot at the table. However, I would argue that to Amy's point, she was saying that if a lot of people drink a lot of milk, if you're doing a lot of dairy in your diet, maybe we stick with the low-fat dairy, but then we include the healthy fats, including those like olive oil, nuts, seeds, avocados. This can help your body absorb those crucial nutrients that are fat-soluble nutrients and contribute to overall health. So as is the case of most foods, not all fats are created equal. What we know is you're probably eating more than enough fat, but it may not be the best type of fat for you. Uh, Americans have doubled the amount of fat and oil in their diet since the 1970s. And in fact, we're eating almost every kind of food these days. We're eating almost every kind of food, more of every kind of food, with the notable exceptions of healthy vegetables and eggs. So... It's good to limit saturated fats from things from things like red meat, coconut oil, and cheese. Some cardiologists have suggested that saturated fat isn't the artery clogger it was once thought to be, but research suggests most people are better off nibbling limited doses of those foods. There are some good, good fats out there, like I mentioned, the avocado, nuts, fish, and olive oils. They have high levels of monounsaturated fats, which we know can actively lower your cholesterol. They are staples of the Mediterranean diet. And again, I kind of always go back to everything in moderation is still a good good advice. We keep in mind that fat is very concentrated. A tablespoon of oil does provide 120 calories, whether it's from full fat dairy and or healthy fat, healthier fats in our diet. Uh, those calories can add up quickly and contribute to weight gain if you're not mindful of your portion size. So it's fine to have fat in your diet as long as you don't use it as an excuse to eat sugar either. So if you really love a higher fat yogurt um, and you have a healthy weight, then, you know, or, you know, I think you can easily fit this into a healthy balanced life or diet. But you may want to keep, like Amy mentioned, keep an eye on the sugar levels of the yogurts that you're consuming and those types of products. So, and that's about all I can talk about. <laughs> I'll buzz myself out. So, yeah, I mean, it's hard. Yeah, it's a, it, <laughs> to me, it's again what you what you enjoy using. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. if you and I've noticed now on grocery store shelves, there's a real push towards marketing full fat. Whole That's fat. interesting. I'm seeing a lot more, especially in the yogurt aisle, a lot more That's push. That's good because I feel like I've tried to encourage my clients to not always go for the low-fat yogurt, especially yogurt. So yogurt, if you think about it, a lot of times that's a snack in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And so standalone, if you're buying those non-fat yogurts and they're high in sugar, they're just going to leave you hungry quicker. Mm-hmm than if you get a yogurt that has a little bit of fat to it. Right. So I know I was just defending skim milk and lower fat milks, but I honestly believe there is a balance and, and there is a time and place for eating some of the, the higher fat. Right. The, yeah. And again, I think that's that's something that, get, how much are you going to use? You know, if you yeah. have somebody who drinks a lot of milk, right? again, just from a caloric perspective, from an energy balance perspective, Lower mm-hmm. fat is going to mean lower calorie. Yeah. But if it ends up that you eat more 
other things later on because the, there's no fat there to satisfy you, yeah. then it's it's very possible that you'll end up overeating calories on something else later on. Just mm-hmm. like those exactly. fat-free cookies that we exactly. you know, oh, all yeah. in the 90s. Snack wells. Right, people <laughs> overeat yeah. right. other foods. Exactly. Yep. That health halo effect. Right. So the last one, because it's almost Halloween, <laughs> is talking about our favorite candies. Candy. So we're defending our candy. <laughs> I can defend my candy. Okay. Um, so I you, picked candy corn, which is okay. everybody's favorite candy oh. to hate. So okay. here we go. Okay, go. So all you have to do is Google candy corn, and all sorts of fun things <laughs> come up. I had a little fun with this week. Uh, there was an article called "Candy Corn is Garbage." <laughs> From Deadspin, um, which Deadspin points to hobos, serial murders, and Satan as the only people who like candy corn. Well, add me to that list because I love candy corn. Serious. I think it's worried. I think it's a childhood thing. This is something that we ate when we were kids. So let's talk about the history of candy corn very briefly. It was one of America's oldest sweets. In fact, many of today's popular candies came about within the last 100 years, but believe it or not, candy corn has been around since the 19th century. According to oral history, the first invented candy corn was uh, invented in the 1880s while working in in the Philadelphia-based Wonderly Candy Company, where it went by the name chicken corn which I think is really interesting. Um, By the turn of the century, um, the company now known as Jelly Belly had begun producing the confections on a larger scale marketing as chicken feed in rooster adorned packaging. So this corn kernel shape was no accident. At that time, farmers made up about half of America's workforce and companies marketing agricultural themed products were very popular. In fact, all year long, they were marketed that way. What set candy corn apart and made it different was that tricolor design that we're all familiar with. At that point, it was done by men pouring heavy buckets of steaming sugary liquid, very you know labor-intensive process. But now, of course, that's being done by machines, uh, which means that we can produce a lot of candy corn. Candy corn is According to the National Confectioners Association, American companies produce 35 million pounds or 9 billion kernels every year of candy corn. So frankly, someone's eaten it (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. So if you don't like candy corn, that's fine. From a caloric perspective, if you're wondering how many calories are in candy corn, for 21 pieces, it comes in as a modest 150 calories. Of course, all of them are from sugar, but whatever. <laughs> so, it's delicious. I love it. If you put a bowl on the table, it'll be gone. I love the little pumpkins. They're all delicious. So candy corn for the win. Nice. Okay. Very nice. <laughs> Don't take away my candy corn. <laughs> I won't take okay. away your candy corn. Now, I will say candy corn Oreos gross oh you know there's all kinds of candy corn things that are going on now flavored things i don't i don't need any of that yeah give me i'm a traditionalist Uh candy corn i really think it was from my childhood i used to sit in front of the television Uh at our babysitter's house yeah and i would eat them like piece by piece i would take off the white layer first and then i'd eat that okay so i have to tell you i've never been a huge candy can can candy corn fan however have you ever had it mixed with peanuts? Oh, that sounds really good. <gasps> You've never had no. it? No. I have oh. to do that. 
It really tastes yummy. like... Oh, it's the salty sweet thing, right? It's the salty sweet thing. It's so... Oh, you are in it for a treat. I can't wait. You have to tell me what you think. Okay. You'll have to try it and get back to me. Okay. Okay. So that's the only way I really like candy corn, but that's me. So for me, go ahead. Okay. For me, if it doesn't have chocolate in it, it's not worth eating. Happy <laughs> so, Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> so I do go for the dark chocolate, and we've heard so much about dark chocolate. I wanted to kind of go through a deep dive on dark chocolate. It is loaded with nutrients. It has a positive effect on your health that can have a positive effect on your health. So it is made from the seed of the cocoa cocoa tree. It's one of the best sources of antioxidants on the planet, cocoa. So studies show that dark chocolate, not the sugary crab, can improve your health and lower the risk of heart disease. If you buy quality dark chocolate with a high cocoa content, then it is actually quite nutritious. It contains a decent amount of soluble fiber and is loaded with minerals. To break it down, a 100 gram bar of dark chocolate, which when we say that we're talking about 70 to 85% cocoa, has about 11 grams of fiber. It has 67% of the RDI for iron, 58% of the RDI for magnesium, 89% of the RDI for copper, Oh, and it's got 98% of the RDA for manganese. So it has plenty of potassium, phosphorus, zinc, and selenium as well. Of course, 100 grams is about three and a half ounces, and that's a fairly large amount, not something you should be consuming daily. However, and if you did eat three and a half ounces, we're talking about 600 calories. Okay. So, okay. (laughs) So let's put it in perspective a little bit. Uh, but so for this reason, dark chocolate is best consumed in moderation. And uh, the fatty acid prof- profile cocoa is ac- and dark chocolate is also excellent. The fats are mostly, uh, let's see, the fats are mostly saturated and monounsaturated with a small amount of polyunsaturated. So there is, it's funny, there's not, it shouldn't be a lot of saturated fat because it's a plant. But anyway, it also contains stimulants like caffeine, three theobromine, but it's also likely unlikely to keep you awake um, because it's a small amount of caffeine compared to like drinking a cup of coffee or anything like that. So to summarize, dark chocolate is rich in fiber, iron, magnesium, copper, manganese, and a few other minerals and a powerful antioxidant. So cocoa and dark chocolate has a lot more antioxidants than a lot of other foods. So it can be beneficial that way. And that's where we see a lot of people jump on the bandwagon. But again, you know, it usually comes with some sugar too. So, oh, okay. So <laughs> I my, had a lot. So my question <laughs> on dark chocolate is like, okay, so if I'm buying like, you said you have to buy the 70 to 80%. Correct. So like the stuff that you would see like, I'm thinking like yeah. a special, special dark. dark. Is that dark? It's enough? not going to be, I don't think the special dark gets to 70%. You know what? I'm going to look it up real quick if you don't mind. Sure. (laughs) Because I'm wondering, do you need to spend the dollars on something that's a little more expensive, a little fancier to get that 70 to 80 percent? Yeah. Because I I know there's a lot of sort of dark chocolate on the market that maybe isn't as dark as it needs to be to have those healthy benefits. Uh, Yeah. Percent cocoa. This is really fascinating. We're watching her Google. 
right? <laughs> um, and I don't know if, so I guess Hershey's might make a special dark, it looks like that is 100% cocoa. That, that's, that's dry not, powder. That would be that's the dry, dry powder. Right, that's not something powder. that you eat. Right. Um, I'm not getting the candy version. See, I've never been able to see that on the candy. They don't disclose that. So I guess I'm just assuming it's not 70%. It's yeah. less than that. So you want to look for on those bars that yeah. you're looking for. They'll be chocolate. proud of it. They'll say it's, yeah. it's 70%, 70% or 80%. I'm assuming that Hershey's just isn't right. there. Yeah. I can't... Um, but you get past the bitterness of dark chocolate. I know. So how do you get past that? I think it comes down to everyone's taste buds are slightly different. And mm -hmm. I, to me, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I like the bitterness. Now, I don't get me wrong. I definitely prefer a seventy percent cocoa bitter, like seventy percent dark chocolate versus the eighty-five percent. Um, but I will eat the eighty-five percent. Mm -hmm. And it's nice because actually it helps me not eat as much. Honestly. Oh, because you know it mean? is kind of strong not, and yeah, yeah, it's not so sweet and so it's just it gives me a little bit of sweet but just I don't know. I've just it's always enjoyed. It's yeah. just a preference I think I have cuz I know people around me my husband does not prefer dark chocolate at all. Right. He re much rather have milk chocolate. Yep. And so I know the sugar can outweigh it but you know what even the milk chocolate is made with that cocoa. Mm -hmm. So it Gets smaller and smaller amounts of the nutrients mm -hmm. that I talked about, but they're still there, right? Right. right. So I think again, I so much of that is how much are you going to eat? Exactly. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, chocolate should be. I think it's fine to enjoy chocolate every day. I uh, do too. You know, I I think that's fine, and even if you <laughs> can get away with eating something that's very small sized as you know a treat, mm -hmm. sit down and enjoy it. Right. Savor it. Don't eat it on the run or in your car. Or, right. That's when we kind of lose track of what we're eating mm -hmm. is when we're distracted. So yep. if you're going to enjoy that stuff, really sit down and enjoy it. Yeah. And frankly, if you're going to sit down, I'll enjoy my candy corn just the same. There so, you go. <laughs> happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween. Yes. So if you enjoyed today's show, we want to hear from you. We want to hear more of your ideas of what you'd like us to debate. Yeah. Um, if you have suggestions, please feel free again to email them to us at dish at secretliferd.com or visit our website www.secretliferd.com and we will see you next time wherever you get your podcasts.